Well, change in nature is happening all the time. It's not something that you never start from a static place in nature. And nature really doesn't think about change. I'm just looking at based on its design and its frame, but it looks at evolution. The livingness and the movement, the sheer wondrous dynamic movement of nature is a reminder that we are all moving all the time. We are all evolving all the time. So today, Paul, we had Dr. Kathleen Allen joining us, uh, and she helps organizations and individuals create meaningful change using nature as a model. She's got a rich history of working with leaders and coaching them and working with organizations around this idea of change um, and what is different, or I guess it's it's not different for us, but different to traditional ways of doing this is that she looks to nature for inspiration for that and looks to nature's patterns to really understand how to harness the idea of change within an organization and to support leaders as well develop new new practices uh, she's an author a speaker and a consultant as well and it was lovely to have her join us today how did you find the conversation really good i mean um confession to make is that you know you and i did a talk to a let's just call them a major telecommunications company earlier today and in order to prepare myself for it out on my morning walk with the dogs who shall not remain nameless, Hector, I went and not quite hugged, but touched a tree and just sort of felt the energy of a tree in order that I would. And then I said to myself, this large telecommunications company is a living system. It is alive in the way that this tree is alive. And actually that really helped and didn't feel weird when we came to do the talk. And it's, and the sort of segue into talking to Cathy today was that she clearly comes out of that environmental, ecological kind of Gaia background. And, and it was really encouraging, I think, for us to hear that she feels the way that we've come out of a technology background, a world of large organisations but bringing this concept of the organisation as organism in is, it felt like it joined up different parts of kind of understanding and history, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you did that this morning. It's such a nice, it's a nice ritual to have, I think. Um, well, it's not a normal ritual. I don't do it every time. No, a nice, a nice practice to have done this morning that felt right. Yeah, I mean. yeah. yeah. Do you, do you see me as a bit of a tree hugger? Or? I do now. You know, okay. <laughs> because, you know, she spoke about how, you know, we asked her, how, how did you come into this idea of nature-inspired mm. practice? And she shared that growing up, she would be hiking and out in nature and she just felt very... And I think this is a theme that we, we see again and again, like when we spoke to Lucy Colclough of Work Wild, she feels this this very personal connection to nature and so it's an easy step for her to bring that into her work. And it's, you know, you felt it as well. It's something I feel, even where I live, isn't necessarily connected with nature. And I think it brings it brings a different perspective. We were talking about change. And one thing that Kathy shared that I loved was this idea that, you know, when we traditionally think about change management, it's top down, it's doing change to people and expecting them to toe the line and come along with us. And what 
Kathy shared was when you start to view change through this nature-inspired lens, you're not seeing the organisation as deficient in something. You're not seeing as, as oh, what's it lacking? Because we, we need to bring it up to speed. And instead it's seeing what gifts and abilities are already present in the system that need to be amplified. And what is in present in the system where it's time has come and we can match and we can let it die away. And it's it's a very different way of approaching change for an organization. Yeah, and, and, and Shim, it makes me think that, you know, I mean, throughout my working life, we've had this thing called change management. I there's change and we're going to manage it. So get ready, change, because we're coming for you. <laughs> you know, we're going to get hold of you. We're going to control you. We're going to turn you to a six-point process. But actually, when you start, as Kathy was saying, when you start to understand how nature functions, change doesn't really exist in nature because change is nature. It's, a, it's, it's like if, it's in a, if something's in a perpetual state of being, does it really exist? I mean, is change actually an illusion? Because it's it's like it's so present that it assumes the change assumes there's something called no change. But is there ever no change? It's a, quite a sort of philosophical idea, I suppose. <laughs> but 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 it does make me see the limitations of what organizations have regarded as change management and i wonder whether the living uh, system idea allows a different way of approaching change or holding it mm, and a healthier way i think one of the things that came through was the idea of the emotions involved in experiencing change um, you know, we, we spoke about fear, we spoke about the idea of shame um, and how you can get stuck in the kind of adaptive cycle if you're focused on just feeling fear associated with change and fear of letting things go or just wanting to keep things sustained. And, you know, she mentioned the importance of emotional intelligence. And I think we're starting to see those conversations take place in organisations. But um there's still a while to go, but I think being able to talk about it and name it gets us part of the way. Well, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that organ. I mean, we we had on the talk we did earlier today. They they have spirit champions and people representing the spirit of the organisation. I think that's very very different. I mean, what you were saying reminded me that you know McKinsey would constantly be doing articles about why most change management efforts fail and what you would if you start to think that actually you're using the wrong tool if you like it's not surprising if you're trying to manage change but it's like trying to what's the word it's like trying to capture space or air uh, on a spade or something like that if the tool's unsuited to the job it's not surprising that, that it would, would fail. I, I, I think once you start to think in a much more regenerative and evolutionary and growthful uh, approach, then it, it really changes the dynamics of change. I'm just wondering whether we've got a kind of good example in mind about that. 
don't we probably know. we probably do and we probably it's probably like do. buried within the depths of our memory right now to be able let's, to talk let's about keep it, it let's keep it to ourselves we don't want to yeah, let the good examples it. go don't share so should we um should we get into our conversation with kathy let's do it Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today um, on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you with us. Um, we've had various conversations over the last few months and it's brilliant to have you here. Um, and I thought it would just be great to start with. Could you share with us how you discovered nature-inspired practice? I think it goes back down, back to when I was a kid and I just love being outdoors and in nature. And I would spend all my summers if I had a choice out in the forest. Um, and I always felt more connected and more whole. It just seemed obvious to me that we were all connected when I, and that message was really clearly framed for me when I was literally walking or hiking. And I came from a family of hikers. And so we would spend our uh, annual vacation up in this place called Cook's Forest. And we would hike every morning and afternoon, and it would just be something that would nurture, nurture and ourselves. And so then my mother was also a gardener, and I loved helping her in the garden. And my dad was, um, you know, an entrepreneur, business owner, and he was really good at developing people. And so for some reason or other, that combination of experiences helped me see how developing people and eventually organizations and leadership and nature, growing things in nature and how nature was designed and grew. Uh, those connections just seemed obvious to me. And so I, I think intuitively I started way back then. That's fantastic. And I love how it combines the idea of the, the gardener and your father's business as well. And there's something about hiking in nature. I was just sharing, it's what I was doing yesterday to, to kind of see in spring. And there's something about that feeling of cool. I know that for you, that idea of being out in nature and being in the forest um, is something that has felt really meaningful to you as well as the way in which we discovered this idea of applying nature to work. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's not an obvious thing, is it? Kathy, to sort of connect the world of work with the world of, world of nature, if we can call it that. And it, I know when Shimrit and I were, were sort of looking at writing Nature of Work, it was a sort of quite a, a disrupting idea to think, well, actually, we want to write a book about work that's also a book about nature. I mean, was was it obvious to you when it when was it obvious to you that these two spheres, if you like, were were connected? Well, I think there's two kind of pathways that I guess we I might call them parallel pathways. So I had this grounding from being a kid, and um, in organizations, my leadership was always a bit unusual because it brought together human development and organizational development and um, and leadership together in trying to create really great places where individuals and the organizations could thrive. So I spent the first part of my half of my career, a little over half of my career, leading um, organizations within higher education. So intuitively, I was always going down this path. And then about 22 years ago, I ran into Jeannie Benius's book on biomimicry. And before that, let's see, then 
mid 80s, I ran into Margaret Wheatley's book on leadership in the new science. So those were kind of significant books for me. And they, they started changing all, you know, I was a big, I'm a big eclectic reader. So I was reading all the business books. And um, eventually when I got my doctorate in the uh, early 90s, I had, I was steeped in the literature that we grew up in. The problem is, is that the literature doesn't recognize the fundamental interdependence of our systems, and it doesn't recognize our systems as living. So there's a lot of, um, so these significant books like Wheatley's and um, Jeannie Benyus's book on biomimicry, kind of just, they were books outside of the field and outside of the traditional reading path that then exploded the way I was thinking about it. So biomimicry at that time was really trying to figure out how do we use design in nature to develop products in business like windmills and the film on the windows to keep the windows from, so the windows could slough off dirt and things like that. But they weren't really applying it to human systems. And my world was all about people, people and organizations. And so that's where my brain, my mind went was to that direction. It seemed obvious to me, but then I think that's one of the shorthand definitions of creativity, I think, is that you see the same thing everybody else sees, but you you think about it differently. Mm, that's a really nice way of putting it. Is there a particular example from the world of work, any particular organization that, that was sort of inspiring you? Where where you felt that they were a kind of pioneer in this in this area? Well, the people who found me when I first started my consulting business about twenty two years ago, twenty three years ago now, they were the people that were really great traditional leaders of their organizations, but they realized that they needed more leadership. Uh, capacity at the more people speaking for the organization as a whole than just themselves at the top of the of the organization. And so they were pushing the envelope and they were seeking another way to think about leadership. And in order to help them move through that, they wanted to build more integrated organizations and less siloed organizations. So what I was, what my business kind of created for me was a bunch of people who wanted to experiment, who were um, thinking they were good at the traditional work, but they realized as we were getting more and more complex in our work that our traditional frameworks were not sufficient. And so we started exploring together. And at that time, there wasn't really much business many business books that were talking about integrated organizations and relationships and interdependence. And so I went to nature, uh, the sustainability literature specifically, to start looking, you know, okay, what sector and field writes about connections and integration and interdependence and sustainability was one of the places. The resilience literature was another and then biomimicry. And so that's what I would bring these ideas into my coaching relationships. Because I coach people who are doing large scale change work. And then we would start exploring together. Thank you. And that area of change is one that is so complex 
and hard. So with, with the organizations that we work with, it's the big question is how do we do change management? And it's what are the models that we need to use and how can we get our people to change in the way that we need them to? And I would love to hear about how your practice of looking at organizational change has been influenced by nature. What have you learned from looking at the patterns and the way in which nature emerges in change about how we could be doing it better? Well, change in nature is happening all the time. It's not something that you never start from a static place in nature. And nature really doesn't think about change I'm just looking at based on its design and its frame, but it looks at evolution. The system is always evolving towards more complex, more interdependent, more dynamic, more diverse systems, you know, moving towards old growth forests, mature prairies, mature coral reefs. That's how it's designed. So I've now shifted from change to evolution. And then I've also shifted in my change work to think of the system as also a third entity in the room. So it's not just the leader and the people in the organization, but the system itself is the third entity. And when you, I used to sail um, when I was younger. And when you sail a small boat, you don't have a motor on the back. So you're trying to figure out how are you in relationship with the system? In this case, the wind, the volume and speed of the wind, the direction of the wind, the waves, the sail, the design of the boat and your skills as a, as a person, um, a skipper of the boat. And that somehow helped me see that you're never alone and but most of our change work is always done to people and it's done often to for change for change sake rather than to fundamentally evolve the whole system so when i think about change i think about how do we unleash the assets and the people and the talents already in the system when I think about change, I assume interdependence instead of separation. So that means I'm asking questions like, how do we, what interactions will help make this work instead of who's going to make this work? Um, when I think of the larger system as a living entity, I know that there's energy there. And so I'm transforming the energy in service of the larger possible direction of the larger system and the organization. Um, I know that seems conceptual, but for me, it's very concrete. It's like a, a pulse of energy that you're tracking in your organization when you're in, heading in the direction that you want to go. You know, as human beings, we tend to over-engineer and over-control change and as well as products. And we don't, we think of the people that we're trying to move as the other. I don't need to change, but these other people do. There's this great book called Gentle Action that uh, David Pete wrote. He was a physicist and it was about change, but it, it started with the assumption that we're all connected. And so when if everything is connected, the way you think about change is deeply embedded in the interdependence, not in the separation. And so you're, you have to look at yourself and say, how am I part of the problem? And in nature, you know, we we see 
the livingness and the movement, the sheer wondrous dynamic movement of nature is a reminder that we are all moving all the time. We are all evolving all the time. So you're never shifting change from a static place. You're always you're trying to look at what is the smallest thing that optimizes the interdependence and the self-organization of the system and the people in it that can help us achieve our highest potential. So I now, instead of thinking about how many resources have to be created to drive change, I think about what is the smallest thing that we can do that will over time create the highest, best possibility for the system. Yeah, and it's it's such a uh, different and, and refreshing way of, of thinking about change. And just to kind of brought, take this idea of how do we um, navigate in a world of change. I mean, it, it, you know, even going back 10 years, we thought there was a lot of change around. And then we've had since then sort of a whole raft of changes, both in the world of work and in in the world generally, that it's hard to kind of take stock of them. And now we've we've also been through a pandemic and now we're looking at uh, war. Um, not that war was absent before Russia invaded Ukraine. But, you know, and, and somebody said to me, a senior leader who said he was talking to one of his daughters, and and she uh, and she was talking and saying it felt like the world was off its axis, and there's a real sense of of dislocation, and and I wonder how how do you kind of deal with change in your own life, and how does and and are there kind of um, lessons in in that kind of for all for all of us because. I mean, we were talking to a bunch of technologists from a major telecoms company earlier today. They're all dealing with change in their own organization, but increasingly it's about dealing with change in the in the world around them. Well, that's always been true. It's just that we haven't always noticed it. I think that in terms of my own change work internally, one of the things that nature has taught me is to see feedback loops for myself and because living systems scale, the things that are going on inside of me are the same th patterns of behavior, resistance and movement, for example, in groups, communities, organizations, and the world. And so when I see devastating news going on in the world, one of the ways that I help kind of make meaning of what's going on is I go up to the feedback loops. So in organizations and in paradigm shifts, one of the things that we notice is that right before an old paradigm dies, the voices of the old paradigm and the behaviors of the old paradigm rise and become stronger. And I think what we're seeing is an old paradigm of a me mechanistic organizational framework dying and a new paradigm of nature and, and uh, aligning us with biology, our biology and our organizations and our systems with biology and biological frameworks from, of nature rising. And so as that new paradigm kind of emerges, we see all of this old way of doing, which is really based in trying to manipulate power and control 
is just, it just feels like it's all around us. But when I look at it from a feedback framework, because nature basically, it evolves with information. So DNA, in nature, only the DNA that is most adaptive gets passed on to the next generation. DNA is a knowledge source in nature. It's an information code. And so when I think of evolution, I think about information. What is the information that we want that is missing in the system that will help either me as an individual or the organizations that I'm working with evolve? And then the second element that nature uses to help with adaptation is feedback loops. So feedback either reinforces certain behavior or it dampens it down and says this is no longer functional. And so when I look at whether it's um, the invasion of Ukraine or our resistance to uh, the knowledge and information around climate change, I look at say, okay, what what is the feedback that this larger system is trying to tell us that is supposed to kind of reinforce our evolution? And and basically the world is moving. It's already a state of interdependence. It's already a state of fundamental connectedness. But we have leaders of organizations who don't see the connections. They see the separation. They see their autonomy. They don't see how their actions are creating near-term and longer-term places on the earth that are going to become unlivable. But the nature is a much more powerful force than any individual corporate leader. And that the feedback coming from nature about how we have utilized uh, the resources of nature are getting more and more intense which is one of the fundamental principles of nature. And it's also a feedback and it's also applies to us personally. When I'm resisting something that will make me healthier, the feedback loops of the resistance and ignoring it get stronger until I finally let go of my resistance and lean into what I'm supposed to be doing differently. And that matters. And so what we're seeing is this high intense holding on to the old and not knowing how we really can, not feeling comfortable letting it go, you know, in the adaptive cycle, which is a nature principle, the holding on tightly at the threshold between sustain and release is shown, it's actually seen in its rigidity. And we're working in political systems that have a whole bunch of rigidity in them. And, uh, so it tells you where, you know, the, the system is going to collapse around that rigidity because it can't keep up with the change coming out of, from outside. Yeah. And, and, and it's and it's been on my mind for quite a while, but it seems to be intensifying that. And it sounds too kind of polarized, but it but it feels to me like we're, we're living in a world where there's. A, a kind of relentless amount of change. And as you say, nature doesn't really even have a concept of change because nature is change. It's 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 almost like a it's in a state of constantly becoming. You know, it's spring at the moment, our gardens coming into life. You know, where does it all arrive from? But there's there's this relentless stream of change. And then there's what I'll call no change or fear of change. And so you've got this sense of re- wanting to revert to a a past so you could call it 
you know, uh, if you look at Brexit, it was about a sort of reversion to a, a, a sort of sense of a, of a Britain that had gone, uh, make America great again. You can look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine as make Russia great again. You know, you look at you can look at all of the instances, both local, global, and it's about change versus no change or fear of change. And, and, and I think it's probably intensifying because there's nothing you can do in a way to stop change happening. It's, it's part of a sort of inevitability. And one thing that I did was, and I haven't blogged about it because it just felt too sort of close at hand, but if we look at, we talk about living systems and we talk about organisations as organisms. And if you look at the, I'll call it kind of Putin regime as a system, it's very top-down, it's very rigid, it's very sort of unidimensional. And if you then look at the counter-effect that it's produced, the kind of globally connected You've got things like the whole of you've got uh, anonymous, the cyber activists. You've got these multifaceted financial sanctions. You've got a certain level of kind of military activity. You've got political, diplomatic, intelligence led. You've got this multifaceted opposition. And so you've got this, in a way, a coming together of one way of organizing with another way of organizing yeah i think you're yeah i think there's behind all of that activity that you described and behavior that you described there's something deeper which is a worldview so we've mostly lived in an exploitive extractive economy whose whose worldview is colonial and consumer and its purpose is actually the uh, enclosure of wealth and power and the resources that you use to drive your business are extracted and the leadership is top down and the culture is exploitive. So that's the, but nature doesn't work that way. Nature is a regenerative, whether you call it a regenerative economy, but it's designed to regenerate. It's gone through five mass extinctions and life is still here. So it's designed to support the life of future generations. And it's it will always evolve in that direction. So in nature, the worldview is caring and almost a sacredness of relationship to each other and land. The purpose is ecological and social well-being the way you you use resources is um, uh, in a regenerative kind of frame, a circular economy, a, um, a green or blue economy where you're only harvesting what um, what can be regenerated in the time span. And your leadership tends to then be more distributive, more deep democracy frameworks and your culture is not exploitive your culture is collaborative so this is really we see this in the deep wisdom from indigenous tribes they tend to work in more in this regenerative framework and thousands of years of history and knowledge of being in relationship to land has generated that framework of community and purpose so what's behind everything you describe this change no change this is really about trying to control the outcome 
you know, the Buddhists would say, where do we get our suffering? Well, we get our suffering when we're, you know, we bring our suffering onto ourselves. And I think one of the things that's happening today is that we're generating a whole lot of suffering because we're, we're trying to control everything around us. And control is not possible. Influence, yes. Control, no. Are there any kind of um, ways that nature can try and um, help what I think is people's inevitable fear around change? Uh, I mean, I completely get, even though I don't agree with it, this sense of I want to go back or I want to kind of, this is overwhelming to me. And we all feel, at least I do, at times overwhelmed. And I wonder, is there something that nature can almost help alleviate some of the fear that I think is understandable around this degree of change? I mean, when this leader, who I mentioned, his daughter says that it feels like the world's a bit off, she's not saying, and that's a fantastic thing. She's saying... That's scary. So humans are different, are part of nature. And the thing that causes us sometimes our, causes our own suffering is our emotions and our consciousness. So our emotions of fear um, actually interfere with the adaptive cycle, which has been running nature for 3.8 billion years, which is kind of an explore, launch, sustain, release in an infinity loop on its side. And that loop in nature, there's no kind of interruption in that there's always a, a release in, in nature that creates a back loop that goes into a new design or structure that then eventually allows us move into exploration because nature experiments all the time, but it only replicates what work. It has these sustaining frameworks. You know, this, this idea that waste is never wasted, it becomes fuel for the next generation. That's part of this adaptive cycle releasing form always follows purpose or function that's part of this adaptive cycle but how do people stop their own evolution and how do they stop the evolution and creativity of their organizations they stop it at two thresholds one is the threshold between explore and launch and it's driven on fear and so this idea that we're we don't have enough resources. The world is based in scarcity. Um, that causes us to think about all these things we want to do, but we never actually try any of them. And that's what organizations, when they say, I wish we could be more innovative, that's, that's really, it's anchored in our human emotions, in our organizations of fear and scarcity. And then the other threshold is the threshold between what we're trying to hold on to or, or hold tightly to or sustain and what needs to be released because it no longer fits how the world is changing. And that's another kind of point of suffering, but that's also driven on our emotions of fear and our consciousness of our worldview and what we think we need to hold on to. So it tells me that as a leadership person as a leadership person as an organizational change person if you're not in the business of emotional intelligence and human development you're going to run into problems because you have to help people figure out how to move through fear 
but nature doesn't have that same kind of thing that we have as human beings. It's fascinating because I think one of, if I think to some of the work that we've done with our members, there's a really basic example, which is uh, when an organization came to us and they were looking for advice and guidance about how a new enterprise social network could be implemented into their organization. And we got ready with all the normal stuff that you would say about how to see through that change of the, of the culture and to implement the tool. And when we shared it with them, they're like, no, we've, we've done all of that. And when we got into the conversation, <laughs> when we actually got into the conversation with them, the blocker, the thing that was causing it to be difficult to to try and have this more collaborative approach of and way of working kind of catalyzed by this tool was fear amongst the leaders it was fear it was in a very emotional reaction to it it was fear of change fear of what what is this going to unleash in the organization and are we ready for it and so the conversation we ended up having was about emotions and how that that feeds into the idea of change and you know you you and I were part of a, a conversation last week in a circle where we were exploring this idea of how can we honor the idea of endings in an organization and in part of the conversation was this idea of shame that came up where when we talk about change there can be a way of approaching it where you're you're almost triggered to feel shame about the behaviors that you are currently enacting or the beliefs that you're holding and you need to let go of them to move forward and shame is a very difficult emotion to feel with so if you're in an organization being told you need to change what you're doing we need to be doing things this way there's this sense that oh everything that we've done in the past is wrong and so a question I have for you is how can we, as the work that you do, that I do, as the listeners do in trying to help kind of see change evolve in the organization, how can we, how can we have bring that emotional intelligence to the, the fear that comes around those transitional moments? So these are some simple things that I have done. One is I've stopped thinking about the organization as deficient and the people in it as deficient. And I've shifted my focus to what are the gifts and um, the possibilities that exist. Secondly, I've helped people remember how adaptive, that this is a, being adaptive is a natural capacity that we have. This is not um, some foreign thing that we've never tried before. It's in nature, adaptation is uh, and evolution is built, literally built into the system. And if you assume, like I do, or believe like I do, that people are a part of nature, where we have similar designs, then, and then we have this capacity too, if we just noticed it in ourselves. So instead of thinking we have, we don't have the capacity to do this, we do. This, the third is that I, I uh, often hold the belief that the system can become better before they're ready to believe it themselves. And sometimes that is enough to help move people through fear. And the fourth thing I do is I talk a lot about active hope and uh, gratitude. So, so uh, Joanne Macy wrote this beautiful book on active hope and uh, you can be, you can be hopeless, which means that, you know, you think nothing can change the world. And so all I, 
like I just have to be depressed for the rest of my life. You can be passive, have passive hope where you can see a better future, but you don't know how to get there and you don't believe you have any ability to influence it. So you're always looking in that position to, you know, somebody who will come in and rescue you or, or make the system better you know, the hero leader, so to speak, or you can have active hope, which is when you, you can imagine a better future and you believe that you have the ability to, to uh, influence that future. And so every day you show up and behave in alignment with the future that you're trying to create. So generating this active hope and having gratitude for the abilities and gifts that are already present in the system can often help a system begin to believe in itself again and believe that it has the capacity to do what it needs to do to be resilient and thriving in changing conditions. But anchoring it in our own experience, you know, think about, think about birth, think about you know, every single moment that you took your two-year-old to the grocery store. And if that's not an adaptive kind of set of capacities, anybody who's raised kids knows that they've had to adapt all along the way. We know how to do this. Nature, we're, this is how nature works, and we're part of that system. Mm. And I think I wouldn't, I mean, one of the reasons why Shimrit and I wrote the book and why we work with so many large organizations is that um, they are in a way little microcosms of a larger system that we're part of. I mean, you know, even if they're employing hundreds of thousands of people, they're a subset. And on the other hand, once they start to have a greater realization that they are actually a living system, not different from nature, but just another aspect of, of of that which is alive, then kind of navigating change becomes a much more natural and less threatening experience. Because actually, it's as you know, the words you've been using is about adaptation, evolution, and so on. And I do feel that nature actually can help the world collectively understand how to move through some of the challenging changes that we're facing because we really can see it it's it's not possible i mean our garden doesn't think back to last year and think god you know the garden we had last year was so amazing this year it's just a sort of it's like we go again and we go and 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 one of the things i like about nature is that it can cut across different political attitudes and, and approaches. I mean, climate can get political, but a forest and the beauty of it and birdsong is at least least political, hopefully. Any thoughts around that one, Shimri? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that Kathy said was you said the idea that it's bringing in this idea that the organisation isn't deficient. There is so much around the way that we talk about change, which is seeing just focusing on what's missing we talk about skills gaps for example um and all kinds of things and it's it's oh this is what we need to be this is what we need to be and it's shifting it on its head like that which is actually saying what's present at the moment that we want to amplify and what's present that is is has reached its time to allow to pass away 
is a very different way of approaching it um, to the way that I think organizations have traditionally seen it, which is almost like we can just flick a switch and, and things will change as we want them to. So, and I think you're right, Paul, there's, there's something about the language and inspiration of nature that is, un- it's unifying rather than polarizing, looking at it as, as inspiration. Yeah, this is why your purpose chapter I thought was so powerful. And I think that purpose now, so I now think about helping organizations identify their purpose instead of their mission, vision, and values. So the purpose is actually something that forms in the space between the organization and the external environment. So you're asking the question, what is our, uh, what is the deep need that's happening outside of our organization, in the community, in the society, in the world, that our organization is uniquely designed to meet? And that's, that question is the question that helps you identify purpose in a human system. In nature, the purpose is to create conditions conducive to the life of future generations. That purpose, I think, is one of the ways we move through our fear, is that if the purpose is big enough, if it's significant, if we understand why it matters, then our fears get lessened in relationship to the purpose that we're trying to meet. And I think it... it, this uh, I have an organization who runs it's a community foundation that works in rural rural Nebraska in uh, they have over 200 communities that are using un- community funds and community endowments to strengthen their future resilience but they run on this thing called asset-based uh, community development ABCD John McKnight's work and the asset-based community development is you always look at your community and say each person has time, talents, and treasures that they can bring to our community and uh, and help our community thrive into the future. And so this they're not focused on the deficit. They're focused on really doing asset mapping of everybody. And so it's a, it's a totally different way and it unleashes energy in a totally different way. And um, just as we come to a, a close, just to kind of uh, change tack slightly, to what extent or how do you feel that the, the pandemic has changed the relevance of what we've been talking about around nature and work, organizations, organisms? Because your, your book came out pre-pandemic we started writing us pre-pandemic and then it came out in the middle of the pandemic so how has the pandemic changed the ground for this conversation i think it's done a couple of things one is before the pandemic uh, there was a lot of freneticness in the pace of our individual lives we were commuting or you know had more things to do than we had time we were deeply anchored in our organizations as if our organizations and our paycheck was, uh, was the definition of success and value. And what the pandemic did was it slowed down the phoneticness, which allowed us to start noticing other things and tensions that had been in our system, like trading our well-being for the productivity for the company, for example, started to show up in our consciousness. And so at the same time, we were being asked to adapt 
and change our habits and patterns almost every single day. As the need to adapt radically increased, the freneticness that kept us so busy in the activity that we weren't noticing everything else that was going around us diminished significantly. So we had, it was like a perfect condition for us to evolve as human beings, to reach out and connect, to see things in a different kind of way. And so I think what it's done is it has caused people to ask questions like, okay, what is, what should my relationship be with my, with my organization? What, what do I want to achieve in life? What does well-being look like for me? And so I think that all connects us back to these design principles in nature, because it allows it, it brings quest, nature questions. How do I regenerate? How do I create a world where I can thrive? How can I be resilient in all of this change? And I think it's made us stronger, but we still won't see fully all of its impact for a fair amount of time because we're, it's just a snapshot. Oftentimes our news reporting keeps us focused on the present when in fact nature always has a longer view to understand things. And they understand the present is a snapshot, but it's not. The system continues to change every single day and second. And so we have to start viewing what's going on around us, not in these snapshots as if this is each snapshot is the end state like our political conflicts is the end state. We need to see it as part of a larger process that is working, we're working our way through to something else. And that helps us with our optimism and hope for the future. Kathy, that feels like a really powerful place to, to bring our conversation to a close. Um, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your ideas. It's always lovely to to explore them with somebody who know who kind of understands it so deeply and has such great experience of applying it in the real world as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. The Nature Work podcast is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading companies and public institutions to advance their digital workplaces. For more information, visit Digital Workplace Group Com. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time. <laughs>